I remember a young, uh, young woman on uh, expedition uh, in the jungle, and we were in Bolivia, I think. And uh, she basically been exposed to the sun all day, despite uh, best best efforts to try and avoid that. She hadn't had a hat on. She hadn't really taken precautions. I remember being on this wooden raft, drifting across this river as we were we were on this wooden raft with our back flatbed truck, and uh, out in the exposed sun. And she just said, "Jamie, I don't really feel very well," and then promptly collapsed. Hello and welcome to the World Extreme Medicine podcast. My name is Fionn Davis and I'm an emergency medicine registrar and expedition doctor. If you're a nurse, physio, paramedic or doctor, anyone with an interest in extreme medicine, then you're in the right place. In this episode, we're exploring unconventional career paths into extreme medicine. Many people in expedition medicine have had extraordinary careers and sometimes they've even had more than one career, much like our guest today. Dr Jamie Barclay has flipped um, the idea of starting out in in medicine and then branching into expedition medicine on its head and he actually started out as a mountaineering instructor and later qualified as a doctor following his experiences in the Ogwen Valley Mountain Rescue Team. To explore this with me in the episode, I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr Jamie Barclay. Hello. Thanks for joining today, Jamie. So, no um, a little bit about Jamie. Um, he's a mountaineering instructor and doctor based in Snowdonia. He's also the medical lead for the Ogwin Valley Mountain Rescue Team. He started out his career as a marine biologist before qualifying as a mountaineering instructor. Um, and after joining the mountain rescue team, discovered a passion for pre-hospital and emergency medicine. Following this, he retrained as a doctor and continues to pursue an unconventional career path in North Wales as an anaesthetist with a passion for teaching and the outdoors. Does that about cover it, Jamie? Yeah, I think that's pretty good. Great. Okay, so um, we'll, we'll dive straight in. So um, some of your highlights in your career have included rescuing lemurs, working as a marine biologist in the Indian Ocean and summiting Kilimanjaro in a blizzard. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you got started in the outdoors prior to me- your career in medicine? Yeah, sure. So I came up to, um, I uh, travelled around as a, as a youngster. My family, my dad was in the military, so we never really had one place that was <clears throat> somewhere that we would call home particularly. Uh, and then when I um, wanted to leave school, I wanted to come and follow my passion for climbing basically so I went came to North Wales um, and I uh, started medical uh, I started uh, sorry I didn't start a medical degree I started a marine biology degree um, at Bangor University and uh, so I did a lot of climbing leading people in the outdoors and uh, discovered I was really passionate about that so I ended up getting some qualifications in mountain leadership and when I graduated from university I was doing that for work really so I was getting money doing that and at the same time, when I graduated, I managed to get a volunteer post working for the Royal Geographical Society on a program over in the Indian Ocean, which was a fascinating program doing loads of biodiversity work, um, doing education with local people, teaching swimming to people who couldn't swim, but they relied on fishing. So they had a really high risk environment uh, if they fell out of their boat. And um, I had a fantastic life learning experience out there um but when i came back from that i realized that i was really passionate about working the outdoors and that's what i pursued so i didn't really follow my medical um my marine biology um training any further than that and i just carried on 
working uh, in the outdoors. Um, got involved in working in overseas expeditions through uh, a number of companies. And um, so I, I was lucky enough to go as an assistant leader to Madagascar, um, which is where I encountered some lemurs, amongst other things, and uh, um, had a great time there. And then um, I also went to South America and led a couple of youth trips to South America as well. So these are one-month trips taking people who are about to leave school and are trying to develop their own leadership and teamwork and problem-solving abilities and the ability to um, to deal with things that they would never have really expected. So, so that was the sort of gist of those expeditions. And they went, they took took us to to rainforests, to um, uh, mountain environments, to high altitudes. So, so we got immersed in quite remote, challenging environments with young people who you want to give ownership to, but also to give guidance to. So, so that's what those trips involved. Uh, following that, I then carried on. I came back to the UK and I sort of carried on working the outdoors and became a mountaineering instructor, did educational work, guiding work, teaching work, went and worked overseas, um, teaching on a, a tertiary level education program. So I was um, essentially a tutor for people who were training to become outdoor instructors themselves. And this was in New Zealand. I had a great time out there. Um, and I came back from New Zealand and had a bit of a midlife crisis, didn't really know what I wanted to do, where I was now at my point in my career, and I felt like I'd had a, had some really interesting times. I got involved in mountain rescue in that journey and, and had been intermittently involved in dealing with people in the mountains in difficult situations and done a lot of medical training with really good instructors who teach on sort of remote wilderness first aid courses, and that got me more and more engaged in that side of things. So I, um, amongst other things, thought I would try and apply to medical career. Uh, I thought I'd become a paramedic first because that seemed to match up with all the things I wanted to do, work in the outdoors, do something medical, help people. Um, and for various reasons, I, I applied for medical school uh, and I got in, to my surprise, and uh, I passed, to my surprise. So, um, uh, so that's where I am now. I'm trying to sort of tie all of that up together. So you mentioned there that you'd had some remote medical training as part of your expedition work. Um, can you maybe tell us a little bit more about that? What experience you'd had prior to medical school? Yeah, it was all as a lay person, really. So I went to, I remember the first, the first ever medical course I did, the first first aid, proper first aid course I did was, um, was run by a guy who's still actually um, a stalwart member of our, our mountain rescue team. So it's really lovely that the circle has kind of completed because he came, of, came to us as a, a university club at Bangor Uni and um, did this training and we were exposed to what to do with fractured femurs and how to identify um sort of various types of trauma and and it was really good um and uh it was sort of that type of training that very hands-on very practical and um sort of applicable training that i then got exposed to over the following year so working the outdoors you have to have a credible um sort of remote or or mountain focused first aid course and that's uh, usually delivered by i mean it can be delivered by a range of providers but there are some very, very good ones and you tend to find out who they are and you tend to gravitate towards them. They develop a good reputation and they will do a lot of moulage training or scenario training um, and you just develop your develop your skills and your confidence. And so really that was the sort of type of training I was exposed to. And then prior to medical school, the actual things I had to deal with within the mountain rescue team as a trainee when I was a bit younger, I wasn't really at the front line dealing with any serious injury or illness. I was helping tie knots. I was helping lower people down 
on stretchers. Um, but as a mountaineering instructor and expedition leader, um, the sorts of things I had to deal with include, um, I remember a young, uh, young woman on uh, expedition uh, in the jungle, and we were in Bolivia, I think, and uh, she basically been exposed to the sun all day, despite her best best efforts to try and avoid that. She hadn't had a hat on. She hadn't really taken precautions. I remember being on this wooden raft, drifting across this river as we were we were on this wooden raft with our back flatbed truck, and uh, out in the exposed sun. And she just said, "Jamie, I don't really feel very well," and then promptly collapsed, which was quite terrifying. Uh, and so we got to the other side of this river, and uh, just bundled her into the truck, took her to the village where we were going to spend the next night. And the next 24 hours basically spent with her her um, uh, friends, her girlfriends were in a room under instructions to basically be continually spraying her with water and wafting her because essentially she'd become um, fantastically um, debilitated by heat stroke. And so we'd recognise that, you know, I'd sort of put two and two together and there were no other sort of issues to, to confuse the situation. And she recovered and, and the expedition went well and obviously had to liaise with uh, ops, ops room back at home and tell them what had happened. But that was that was probably the first really serious thing I remember having to deal with in the middle of nowhere, with very limited resources, using the training that I'd had and the knowledge that I had, and trying to make sensible decisions uh, and um, you know put them into place, and it and it did all go well. So so um, you know beyond there, as you'd expect, when you're running things, when you're working as an instructor or a guide, you don't go out of your way to try and take unnecessary risks so you hopefully most of us actually have very low levels of serious incidents that we encounter with our clients um but another one that when i was in new zealand had a guy who took a big tumbling fall down this um grassy bank in there well it's a big muddy bank in the middle of the bush so it's in the middle of the forest two days walk in um from any roadhead um and I, I was terrified i thought he died you know, he just disappeared off in the middle of the night. I saw a head torch disappear down the slope, and I, I knew there was a big ravine down below us. Um, and there was a pause. And then from the bottom of this little gully, I just heard this voice shouting, I'm alive! Uh, and we managed to get down to him. Uh, and it basically, he, all he'd done is dislocated his patella. So thankfully, he was otherwise completely uninjured, although he was in a lot of pain, as you might expect, and struggled to walk. So we made, we sort of bundled him into the tent for the night, uh, looked after him, and then the next day managed to um, get him. He was an absolute legend. He managed to walk uphill for a few hundred metres on this very, very painful leg um, to a point where they we could get a helicopter to to lift him out on a, on a long line and a stretcher. So very intermittent medical exposure to serious and, and troubling things um but really when they did happen in the middle of nowhere the training we were given uh, as part of that first aid training i talked about really came into its own and i think uh, i'll talk about this later but i think a lot of that has stayed with me in my approach to medicine and it's been a huge value uh, within within sort of more traditional medicine as well so you mentioned that you joined the mountain rescue team after your first degree um, as a trainee and since then progressed up to becoming the medical lead for the team. Could you maybe just speak a little bit to the experiences you've had with them and your progression through the team? The team? Yeah, sure. So I, I, as I said earlier, I sort of graduated, um, dabbled in marine biology, I guess you'd say, and then became a mountaineering, uh, sort of an outdoor educator and then eventually a mountaineering instructor as part of that journey. And it was after I qualified as a mountaineering instructor and had worked for a while in that industry that I felt like I was really interested in joining the local rescue team. And um, so about 2006, 2007, I joined as a trainee. And <clears throat> uh, that was 
initially there was a lot of training that, that went on so we were trained in specific rope rescue techniques that sort of more appropriate to uh, to the rescue team um and there was an element of first aid training but essentially i was very much turning up on jobs and just contributing with the skills and knowledge i had then which was largely sort of climbing related um that that initial experience, I suppose, the the real things that stick in my mind there were were my exposure to um, to death. Essentially, I didn't really, as I said earlier, I didn't really sort of encounter a lot of serious tragedy in the mountains working in them, uh, thankfully. But um, within the rescue team, you are called to to go and assist people who've been lost for a few days and unfortunately have tumbled off something and, and not recovered. So so you so the first time you ever see a dead body is quite something. Uh, as a non-medical professional as well. And the thing to bear in mind is that the vast majority of the rescue teams across the country are not medical professionals. They're not doctors, paramedics, nurses. They're people who have fairly normal jobs. And so they then put themselves in situations which are hugely stressful and challenging um, and can, you know, can really, really stretch you. So so that was my first sort of experience within the team and then developed more knowledge of how it works and how our, our various processes work in terms of rescue. Um, and I stayed in contact when I went to medical school a few years later. I um, I was quite heavily involved in the team, and then I and I went down to South Wales to Swansea to study medicine. Um, and I joined uh, the Western Beacon teams, Western Beacons team, sorry, down there. Um, and I was involved with them throughout that time. And then when I finished medical school, I rejoined Ogwen and um, uh, just just got stuck in really and obviously having the skill set of a doctor with my previous skill set as a mountaineering instructor having previous rescue experience and, and the sort of um, m- multiple I suppose first aid courses really but the, essentially the the um, sort of practical useful knowledge that I did have um, meant that I, I could bring something back to the team and that that is both in terms of clinical things that I've done on the hill since qualifying as a doctor, but also the training that you can uh, contribute to the rest of the team members, specifically for, for casualty care and first aid. Yeah, I think it's a really nice full circle to be able to bring that back to where your interest for expedition medicine first started, isn't it? Um, and Ogwen is one of the busiest mountain rescue teams in the country. And for anyone who doesn't know where Ogwen Valley is, it's in uh, Snowdonia. Um, with lots of rock climbing, lots of difficult terrain. Are there any rescues or patients that particularly have stood out to you over the years as, as great learning cases or particularly memorable? Yeah, so we're, uh, we're pretty busy. We have about 150 call-outs a year last year, which is, uh, and bear in mind, there were still some lockdown issues around COVID, so that, that shows you how busy we are. Um, and uh, the range of people we see who are injured, so, so focusing on the sort of medical side of it, vast majority 40 percent of people not just in our area but across the uk 40 percent is lower leg injuries so you're talking about sprained ankles broken ankles twisted uh, ankles that sort of thing and so we may be called out purely because they're in a difficult place that they can't get down from they can't walk down from and they need some support so we might be stretching off someone who's who might be in some pain um and it might be a nasty fracture it might just be you know an um a non-specific lower leg injury, which you don't really know if it's broken or if it's not until they've gone through an X-ray. Um, and they'll need some pain relief uh, and then they get carried off. So that's kind of our bread and butter, really. Um, we do see uh, more serious injuries uh, and we do see some medical incidents. Um, 
the serious injuries you see are fairly rare. So across across the country, you know, only about five percent of these things we will see will constitute serious head injuries or chest, abdomen, pelvis injuries, that sort of thing. Um, and only two percent would be a C spine, unstable C spine injury. So it's pretty rare, actually. Um, the sort of things that stand out for me were I remember the first the first patient I came to was actually on my final hill day. So we get sort of signed off after a year of probationary membership. Um, we do a final heel day to just kind of tick the box to say, listen, you've, you've turned up, you've done all the things that are required and uh, you're, you're now a full team member. And um, we were busy rigging a, a sort of rescue setup and a crowd and a call out came through and it was for somebody who'd been uh, trampled by cows. And so we went down with my colleagues to uh, to a field, uh, only sort of 10, 10 minutes drive away. And um, we sort of stomped up this field, um, helping the local ambulance service. And uh, sure enough, poor uh, lady had been um, walking her dog and a, a load of cows had rushed them uh, they were on a footpath the dog was on a lead and they were rushed by the cows and she, the dog ran away uh, and she managed to uh, get uh, her, uh, another family a child family member safely over a, of a stile um, uh, but that she unfortunately was then crushed up against the wall by these these cows um, so when we got to her she'd managed to get over the other side of the wall and the, there was no danger from the cows anymore but um, she was looking in a bad way. She was lying there. She looked pale. It was a lovely summer's day. She looked pale. She was, you know, breathing fast. And, and I remember thinking, uh oh, right, this is it. This is actually everything you train for. And this is the first moment that it has happens. Um, and training kicks in, which is great. So you just do what you do. Uh, and it was very apparent that we wanted to just quickly get her evacuated as soon as we could. So, um, she was, she, she sustained chest injuries. She sustained, um, uh, an obviously fractured arm. Um, and we were concerned for other more serious injuries as well. So um, she was, you know, alert and talking to us. So we explained what we were going to do. We gave some pain relief uh, and uh, got her vac, vac matted um, and into a stretcher and carried her down to where uh, the air ambulance uh, EMERS service was waiting for us um, and handed over. And um, there was that real sort of moment when, when we were handed over uh, and I sort of stepped away from it, realizing. Uh, Oh right, this is it. This is what it's about delivering that kind of weird, remote, non-traditional medical care to someone who really needs it. Uh, and it was hugely satisfying. And she 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 made a really good recovery, um, uh, and has been in contact with us since. And it's lovely to see. We we often get this with people who've who've been picked off the hill. They will come back and visit us. They're very thankful, um, and they're they're very generous in trying to spread the word about mountain rescue and get people to recognise um, and support it. So so that's been fantastic. Yeah, I mean, maybe not like your classic mountain rescue case, but cows are very dangerous animals. I think they kill more people in the UK than any other animal. Um, and I'm sure that's true across the world as well. Um, they're big beasts and I certainly wouldn't want to be crushed against the wall by them. Um, so she sounds no, like she absolutely. was lucky to get away so easily. Yeah, I mean, more, more, uh, you know, more sort of established mountain rescue. Uh, you know, the couple that stick in my mind uh, the last couple of years, we've had a, a both, um, one was a scrambler. Um, who, who fell on Trevan and Trevan is a, a lovely shapely pointy mountain it's got scrambly climbing stuff all around it there's no easy way up it and it attracts lots of people because it's right next to the road it's very easy to access and this chap had um, gone out on a bit of a wet greasy day got up to the top of Trevan and then scrambled down a gully uh, and fallen and tumbled a pretty big distance and was very lucky to have survived and uh, he, he'd badly broken his femur 
Um, and unfortunately, we didn't have a lot of support there. So this is a good example where we weren't able to rely on a helicopter, which we often can do, to help us with extrication. And this guy required a lot of analgesia. He required a lot of splinting. Um, and we uh, then had to spend, we spent hours basically um, lowering him uh, in a stretcher um, with myself and another colleague uh, jockeying. So that's where we're tied onto the stretcher and managing it down steep, uh, steep slopes to get him to a point where we could either carry off or, or get him lifted by the helicopter. And each time we got to a stage where we thought, okay, brilliant. Now the search and rescue helicopter will be able to come and, and lift this guy off. Uh, the cloud level came down, the weather worse, and then we, they just couldn't fly. So in the end, after about 10 hours, we ended up taking him to the roadside to be met by a waiting ambulance um, who whisked him off to, to the, to, to hospital. Um, and and in those situations, you know, you've got someone who's got potentially fairly catastrophic injuries. Um, you are very limited in what you can do. So you as a, you, you can have all the knowledge and the skills in the world, but the reality is in mountain rescue, you need to make timely decisions about what you should do and what you can do and then get them out of there as quick as you possibly can. And if that's by helicopter in, in this country, we're very privileged to have a good rescue helicopter service who can get to very difficult places they can winch people from cliffs and they can they can get people out of tricky places but if you don't have that then your priority is to just try and get this person moving keep them stable try and avoid them getting any worse but but essentially just get them to definitive care as soon as possible and so is it a, there's a need that sort of global big picture thinking as well as the uh, medical skills uh, uh, that you carry with you yeah, and I think that's a really important point about sort of expedition and, and pre-hospital medicine is knowing when to stay and play and, and when to scoop and go, isn't it? And the decision making that goes around that um, is a really mm. important skill as well. Um, and I think something else you just touched on there was that often if the weather is, is bad and you can't get a helicopter, you're often maybe doing prolonged extrications that, like you said, could take hours. Um, and then your team is exposed in bad weather for potentially hours. Um, uh, I guess that's a, just a bit of a double whammy, isn't it? That if the weather is bad, no helicopter means you're out there for longer. Um, and mm. how do you sort of how do you sort of manage the well-being of the team in those situations? Well, that's a really good question, and I guess that sort of um, ties in a lot with you know people listening to this who maybe in, maybe don't have necessarily a lot of experience so far but they're very enthusiastic about getting involved in remote medical care whether that's within this country or overseas and I think the first thing to say is that in the same way as you would expect to work very hard and and train to a very high standard in your medical knowledge and skills you should expect to do that in in the other aspects which are as important arguably more so depending on the environment you're in and that includes your ability to operate in the terrain you're going to if you're going to high altitude and you've never been if someone offers you a job to go to high altitude to be an expedition doctor and you've never been any higher than than sort of Diego de Midi in the Alps uh, and you're expected to go to five or six thousand meters I think it's incumbent on you to have a have a knowledge and an ability at that at that altitude so you need to put that time into developing that experience the same goes to a, a tropical environment desert environment 
And the people in the mountain rescue team in the in in our team have a breadth of experience uh, in the mountains. One of the things that that happens before you join the team is you're vetted, basically, and you know, your essentially your, your outdoor CV is 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 gone through, uh, and you go on the hill for a day and you spend a hill with the team members and people just get to scope you out and, and see can you tie these basic knots? Can you climb up and rig a sensible belay? Can you navigate? You know, if it's absolutely lashing it down with rain, can you look after yourself? And you're not just surviving, you're actually functioning and thriving in, those, in that environment. And that's the UK is fantastic because we're all slightly soft in the head and we go out in the UK in terrible weather, whereas the rest of the world is entirely sensible. And when the weather's bad, they don't go in the hills. So we've trained ourselves just through our sort of, uh, sort of joy of suffering to get good at managing being in the cold, being in the snow, being in the rain, not being able to see anything when you get to the top of a mountain. So so that kind of sets people up quite well. And those are the sorts of experiences that I would encourage anyone to to develop in a, in a safe way, whether it's through friends and, and family, whether it's through going on courses, but build up your skill set to be able to then be that person who's tied to the stretcher, being lowered down rock, heather, mud, it's raining, it's cold, you're being bashed around, and you're at the same time trying occasionally to ask to do it to do an ABC assessment on this guy who's strapped into a, a casualty bag and a vacuum mattress, and all you can do is reach in occasionally, feel his radial pulse, see if the SATS probe monitor's working, which it usually isn't because he's too cold, and just say, "Are you all right?" To which he will grunt something. That's that's your continual observations. <laughs> so you so you're matching all of that stuff together, um, and I think that you need to be able to. Provide yourself bandwidth to focus on the patient care by not having to think about can you put one foot in front of the other and not fall over or can you secure yourself to the rock face because you've already got those skills and that experience. And so that, that's how our members sh- are trained to, to kind of deal with those situations, really. Yeah, you've put that really well, I think. And I think one of the main teachings from Mountain Rescue is self team patient so you're no good to anybody if you can't look after yourself in that environment um and i think you, you've just yeah, absolutely elaborated on that really nicely um and i guess uh moving across to your career in medicine um how do you think that your experiences and your learning that you've taken from um your career before medicine but also mountain rescue um thinking more about the non-technical skills how do you think that's helped your medical career i think i think that it's as you say you you said um non-technical skills and that's become a sort of a a catchphrase for for sort of human factors or or sort of um communication leadership all of those things are bundled in there aren't they and i think that um working in the outdoor sector and training to pass an outdoor leadership qualification you are continually exposing yourself to training and assessment where you're expected to show leadership in difficult situations you're expected to make decisions about what is and isn't safe or appropriate to do when you don't have all the information there so weather might change visibility might be lost you might be disorientated and not actually know where exactly you are and have to kind of work it out back from first principles using your navigation skills and I think that I mean, it's fairly obvious how that would sort of relate to lots of areas of, of certainly acute medicine where you are uh, expected to provide 
care and make decisions about patients without having all the information to hand. You know, you're not in a clinic where you've got the whole list of previous history to hand uh, and can make a very sort of um, insightful decision. So you're working on, on what you've got in front of you and what you're carrying with you. Um, I think that the interpersonal skills are something that uh, my experience within formal medicine is very variable. So people's ability to um, communicate effectively, I think, is uh, is a key success uh, and failure within the NHS and within our, our working environment. So but when it's done very, very well, you see the benefits immediately. You see the team cohesion, people coming together, uh, identifying what the jobs there are that need doing and working efficiently and well. When that communication doesn't work well, um, the, the reverse is true. And so working with people in the outdoors, working with people who are scared, um, who are, uh, are worried and are looking for you to support, that also is a skill that that comes across into formal medicine. You know, I, I think I always use the analogy of abseiling. <clears throat> so often we I've dealt with lots of people over the years who just wanted to to do an abseil for various reasons, and they, often they get to that point where they're standing on the edge and they're looking at you and they're literally crying or they might be really, really scared, but they want to do this thing. They want to push themselves and achieve this thing. And you have to dig into all of your ability to develop rapport, develop trust, convince them that you've got the technical skills to look after them, to get them to consent that what they're doing is what they actually want and that you're going to help facilitate that for them. And then see them at the other end of that journey when they've successfully got themselves down and they're buzzing and they're happy and they've reached their, their positive outcome. Everything I've just said there applies totally to how we engage with people in medicine. And if we go into it thinking about it as that journey rather than another person who's there to be clerked and you're so busy, you just got to get through it as quick as you can. That that to me is the key to the, the buzz I get out of medicine, you know, and anesthetics and, and emergency medicine as well. But I mean, anesthetics is what I'm doing now. And, you know, people often don't really appreciate that that's a thing that we do. We have to walk in, never having met someone, develop rapid rapport, get them to trust us, and then take them through something that could be fantastically challenging, dangerous, traumatic, and get them out the other side. Uh, and that is, um, that, that's really what sort of gets me excited about medicine. I absolutely love that analogy of abseiling. I'm going to approach every patient that I uh, go and see in, in A&E and picture them on the edge of the cliff looking at me. <laughs> I'm going to try and talk them through it. But I think it's so applicable for, you know, procedures that you're going to have to do to people that you know are going to be unpleasant or painful. Or, you know, when you're going to put somebody to sleep in the anaesthetic room, you've just met them and you've got to rapidly develop that rapport and that trust and, and the sort of consent and buy into the process. Um, so I... I really really like totally and and i'm I'm just gonna i'm gonna take this opportunity to to sort of get in a soapbox a little bit but you know we can we can change that for the better like we don't have to accept that when it's really challenging when it's really tiring when you're overworked and things are, are really challenging around you that you can just bypass the the care or the the interaction with people um yeah people can be difficult people can be having a bad time but we can do good stuff for them and I'll give you one example of where just just thinking about it just thinking a little bit outside the box can, can do that so you have how many patients we see in the emergency department or throughout the hospital where we might take a, a gas take a take a, a venous or arteri- arterial blood gas is what I'm thinking of and the number of times I see that when it's a not a time critical death's door 
gas that you need. You just need that gas. We know it's horrible. Told it's horrible. And we've seen people suffering and squirming while we fail to get the first, second, third time. Eventually we get it and we feel great. Just give them some local. Just give them some local and you will make friends with that patient. You will have improved their patient care. And it just it's just little things like that when you sort of you start to have these little light bulb moments. There's no there's no need to not do that. You know, you're never so busy that that is that is desperate. That's just an inappropriate thing to do. So, um, you know, that, that's just one example, I guess, of how I see that translation from just doing the job to doing the job to the best you can being being the example. Yeah, absolutely. Um and I guess we've we've already spoken through some of the lessons that you've you've brought across and applied to medicine. Um, are there any any moments that stand out for you uh, when you're practicing day to day as? Uh, oh, I'm I can draw upon my experience as an outdoor instructor to to help me in this situation. Anything that kind of springs to mind. I think I think the example I gave in anaesthetics is is quite uh, is quite good. Where that sort of it, that's a very you know in a, in a, a surgical setting, you, you know your patient involvement is a very one to one personal thing, isn't it? Like I said, it's about building rapport and, and getting them trusting you and communicating effectively with them um, uh, and ensuring that they're sort of they're with you, you know, that they're they're on board with you um, through that process. Um, down in the emergency room. Um, I think that the number of times where you are party to a, a trauma call or to a, an emergency and you're one of a number of professionals who are arriving, who haven't trained together a lot, you know, they're, they're sort of random who happens to be on the on-call team and you need, you need to have personal leadership, um, you need to have followership as well and, and be able to apply that to understanding that you actually aren't the leader in that role but you need to do some very proactive team working and help the leader and not just wait for them to tell you things um and i think that all of those all of those skills i've I've exposed to some various bits of teaching of that throughout medicine but actually i recognized very early on that those are things that i had brought with me from my work in the mountain rescue team environment but also working as teams of people in the outdoors you are often on your own in the outdoors, a little bit like an anaesthetist, but you're often working as part of a, a multi-disciplinary uh, team in the outdoors. You know, you might be part of a, a team that are delivering um, a combination of water skills, mountain skills, navigational skills, camping skills. And so you need to work effectively with them to deliver the best for the group you've got. Uh, and so definitely I could think of, um, <clears throat> there was a guy who came in, I uh, was bleeding quite extensively from a major, uh, he's been stabbed in the leg and uh, he was hosing out of, um, I think, a femoral venous bleed. And uh, there was a lot going on and um, and I was very much part of that process of, of recognising and making decisions about the timely interventions, including access, including delivery of blood products. Um, and I felt very confident, even though I'm, you know, relatively within my medical career at a middle sort of junior middle grade, you, you know, level, I felt very happy to speak out, very happy to present information and to ask the team leader at the time, Shall we? would you like to do this or do you think this is appropriate? And, and be able to do that in a way that doesn't create confrontation or conflict because you're not trying to be the leader, but you're recognising where there are areas that can, can rapidly be actioned or improved on. 
um, and just offering that information across. And like I say, I've, all of that, I could not say that I've taken that from my formalized medical training, although I thought my medical training was good and they made strong efforts um, to to teach a lot of those things. But I think the reality is that you you need to get exposure to that through different areas of life as well, because they're kind of ingrained skills within a person. They're not something that just come with a job. Um, they apply to lots of walks of life, really. And I guess this is maybe going a little off piece, but just extending that idea. Um, do you think that medical professionals or people who are working in healthcare who are then taken into an outdoor environment, is it possible to improve upon those skills through exposure to the outdoors? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's not a thing in the same way as it used to be, but but, but sort of you know, twenty years ago. Uh, you used to see a lot more uh, of sort of management development training going on, and that was that was basically using the outdoors as a as a crucible to to take your team from a, a corporate setting, bankers, teachers, whatever, and put them in an unfamiliar environment, flatten the hierarchy, so take away the idea that you've got the chief executive standing next to the cleaner, and so that's how the the chain of command goes. You just put them in an environment, say, right, here you go, here's some here's some equipment. What your job is, is to create a raft that will safely get you from one side of this lake to the other. And you then see the people who can solve problems and can work things out, irrespective of what level training or, or knowledge they've got. You can see the people who've got the big picture of what needs to happen and how everyone can contribute to that. You can see the people who are very normally... Um, you know, it's a linear in their thinking and something like this, which is a bit outside the box and not what they're used to, they, they can they can really sort of struggle. So, and that doesn't matter whether you're a consultant, doesn't matter whether you're an F1 or a medical student. Time and again, there are loads of examples out there in the ether about when a relatively junior person has not felt empowered to speak up or to act because the hierarchy or the situation, the structure hasn't really facilitated that. And yet they were right, and they would have been right if they had done that. And, and when they did do that, they were correct, but they weren't listened to. And so so bad things happened. And one of the things that going to a different environment, it doesn't have to be the outdoors, but the outdoors is brilliant for this because of all of the things I've talked about, the sense of challenge. Uh, it's, it's an unfamiliar environment for a lot of people, um, and it requires that sort of team approach to solve problems within it. Um, and it's analogous to healthcare because it involves making risk-based decisions. It involves decisions about safety and danger. It involves levels of acceptability of risk. What's the appropriate level of risk for us to take? You know, if you're taking a group of school kids out on a, um, you know, on a, on a two-day trip, it's clearly totally inappropriate to put them in a very, very serious environment where they could come to serious harm. Whereas if you're training military guys to go to very, very austere, challenging environments where people are going to try and kill them, the level of risk you might accept with them, you're not trying to kill them, but you may accept that they may get injured. They may actually, you know, suffer much greater psychological risk. They're just exposed to that. You have to balance it correctly. Um, and so, and that, that that's controversial as to where those limits are. And obviously we've got lots of examples of where it's gone, gone wrong. But the point is that they're entirely transferable situations and skills to working within the environment as the, you know like i say it used to be the corporate sector but specifically healthcare uh, i think it would be great if we had the opportunity to deliver that for people within healthcare 
um, how, how we do that now with the other stresses that there are available. You know, people haven't got enough time to go and spend with their kids, let alone go on a, on a two or a four day team development training course. So it is quite challenging. But if we create, create the environment where that's possible, I think the benefits would be huge. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I guess just moving away from uh, the sort of clinical stuff a little bit. And uh, you mentioned, um, you've mentioned to me before that um, the mountains are what have sort of kept you sane throughout your career and you've sort of run away to the Alps periodically. Um, Can you maybe just speak a little bit about your personal relationship with, with mountains and the outdoors and what it means to you? When I was a teenager, um, like a lot of teenagers, I had a lot of things going on that were quite challenging for me. And when I was exposed to climbing at my school, I was very lucky. I had some very inspiring teachers who just got some of us. We were usually a bunch of misfits who didn't fit into the rugby team or the football team or whatever. And so they kind of went off and did other things. And they took us rock climbing and it completely, it completely sort of hooked me in a, in a very positive way. And, um, and the next few years were kind of dictated by that. And so every time I went and had an experience climbing, even if it was totally terrifying, which often was, and ended up with me sort of by luck more than judgment, getting to the top of something and being completely sort of freaked out by it. I came away from that with actually a really amazing sense of calm, um, and I, you know, it was a good, a good life experience. And that's just stayed with me throughout really. So all throughout my life, I've, I've enjoyed going to the mountains and, and then rivers and then other, all sorts of things, you know, paddling and, um, climbing and, and sailing and mountaineering, but they've all been because I just get a huge amount for me out of it. It sort of feeds my soul really. Um, and that's true. I know a lot of my friends and, and colleagues and, and I, I know from personal experience that it does the same thing for you as well. So, you know, it's a good thing. It's a good thing to go and do if you're into it. Um, and what I have, what I've done is, is over the years, I just haven't really let go of that. It's changed and I'm doing less at various points in my life because I'm more intensely working or studying or, or doing other things. But it's the same thing. I'm very lucky where I live. I can go for a run at the back of the house. Within five minutes, I'm on the mountains, the Carnadai in, in Snowdonia. And I can just keep running until I want to stop. Um, and that that's really good good thing to have. Very lucky. Um, and when I was in medical school, I was working as a freelance instructor um, to just keep money coming in. And then I tried to take a week off each summer to go off. And I went to the Alps or Picos de Europa or um to other places and then following that when i was when i qualified and i worked really hard through my foundation years um, i was obviously still going out doing stuff locally but i um i uh re-engaged with expedition leadership and i went and led a, a trip to kilimanjaro uh, when i was an f2 so uh not many f2s go and lead those trips but that wasn't why i was there i wasn't there as the expedition doctor as the leader so um I was uh, so I was lucky enough to get that, and we had a successful um, uh, but eventful trip to Kili, which was great. Um, and uh, you know, I also took time out when I qualified as an F two um, to to uh, took an F three year, worked did some emergency medicine work, but also went away and I um, worked uh, as a mountaineering instructor for the, the winter up in Scotland again, just to reengage with that. So. So I found that it's a really important part of me and by re-engaging with it and making sure I keep that connection, it's kept me, given me the perspective, I think, about life for me is about 
many things and medicine is one of those things but medicine is not the all-encompassing thing that that is my life otherwise I think I would be very happy yeah so important to remember that and there's nothing like climbing a mountain or being humbled at the top of Kilimanjaro to remember that that medicine is just one part of of what we do and I think lots of people in expedition medicine will will echo those sentiments as well I think um, as we just sort of draw to a close a little bit, um, something that I know you're really passionate about is is teaching. Um, obviously, you started out as an, as an outdoor instructor. Then uh, I know you do a lot of teaching with uh, medical students and junior doctors now. Um, what what uh, sort of education skills um, do you notice are that you've brought across from outdoor instructing or that are maybe lacking in, in medical education? I think that working in the outdoors and working in medicine are are very different. So, so some things don't work; um, they don't don't transfer across. But working in the outdoors, you tend to have to teach skills or or concepts without um, without having these sort of more traditional education resources. So, you're not in an environment where you can write this down on a piece of paper or put it on a PowerPoint. So you're using practical ways of teaching things. I mean, teaching practical skills should be done practically. So you can you need foundational knowledge and skills, but then you need people to get hands on. So, you know, no amount of showing a PowerPoint slide on how to roll a kayak is going to teach people how to roll a kayak. You need to get them in the water and you need to repeat something a lot of times for them to get the muscle memory. The same is true of suturing. The same is true of intubating a patient. The same is true of uh, putting a cannula in. So, so all of these things are totally transferable and that recognition that you can teach others by applying that principle and you can also watch them and get feedback uh, from them. You can see how they're playing and you can coach them and give them tips on where to go next. So that that's a real transferable teaching skill. Um, I think removing overloading masses of information and expecting that to be digested immediately. Um, so removing that from your teaching plan and maybe choosing on a number of things you expect to get across in, in whatever session you've got. You might have five minutes on a ward, you might have an hour session with a formalised lecture group, but you, you're not going to teach them everything on that day. So you need to be realistic about what they're going to get out of it from you and what you can signpost them to go off and do on their own. They're all adult learners, you know, so, so as medical students, as um, medical professionals, we're adult learners and often we identify our own best way of learning. Um, so I think signposting people towards things um, to help them find the answers for themselves is more effective learning than a, than a sort of massive data download from from a big slide of text or a list or of things you have to remember. There's nothing that makes me listen less than a huge slide of text. <laughs> um, so I guess just to finish this off, is there any particularly memorable cases that kind of bring together everything that we've talked about right through from you know outdoor instructing education um well-being in the outdoors and, and what you've learned from the mountain rescue team how you've brought that to medicine is there anything that any cases that kind of illustrate that i suppose going back to um that that trip i did in in uh, to, to Killy a few years ago where i was um you know, as, as a qualified doctor at that stage, um, albeit quite junior, um, I was um, had reasonable experience in mountain rescue, and I'd done my my years of leading the expedi expeditions overseas and and within um, you know mountain instructing in the UK. 
And on that trip, there was a lot of rapport building, teamwork, you know, bringing a team together of people who didn't really know each other, hadn't really come together before that. It was about 14 people um, ranging from teenager through to sort of 60s. Um, encouraging, enthusing and trying to educate them as we went. So I was teaching people about altitude, um, the benefits of uh, acclimatization. We, we did a little SATS monitoring exercise each night. That was great fun. People could recognize how low their oxygen levels were and they still actually felt okay. Um, you know, little bits of education about hydration, footwear, people getting blisters, all the sort of little bits that you would normally do and just shimmying them along and making sure that things were okay. Lots of confidence boosting was required when we came to the tough days, especially the steep days. And then the the final, going up to the summit that year was very, very um, snowy when we were there. And there's a blizzard came down. We basically, you know, we're completely reliant on um, navigational skills and largely our local in-country guides who are total legends. Um, and there was a huge amount of uh, boosting needing to get people to keep going uh, and to uh, understand that this was a tough environment and we, we could turn around if it got any worse. And thankfully, we were blessed with a, a break in the weather and we got to the top and everyone summited. And then after all of that, had some fairly unwell people. So a guy who became rapidly very, very uh, sick with acute mountain sickness and, and sort of symptoms of high altitude cerebral edema properly ataxic difficulty in walking becoming confused uh, and recognizing that and then getting him down as soon as i possibly could so again going from this educational role this instructional role this pastoral care role to being the acute medical point uh person to, to say right we need to do this and we need to act now and at the same time think about how you're going to protect the rest of the group and manage the rest of the group while getting this person down safely and it all ended well uh, but it was it was pretty stressful, uh, pretty challenging, um, and uh, you know I had a, had a lot of feedback um, on that from people and discussed it with people and, and took a lot of learning from it. Uh, but ultimately, that I guess encapsulates everything that I set out to to do with my skills, I suppose, and my knowledge over the years, what I aspired to achieve with it, um, and it was very satisfying to come back from that going brilliant that's exactly what i wanted to to do and although it was really tough and really stressful and really hard um i feel really good about that and that sort of inspires me to carry on doing what i do um the way i'm doing it great well i think that's a that's a great place to finish thank you so much for your time jamie great it's been good fun thanks for and if anybody wants to go and find out more, there's lots of resources on the World Extreme Medicine website and there's some upcoming webinars uh, which are going to touch on some similar subjects as well. So keep an eye out for them. Thanks for listening to the episode. Please feel free to rate, review and subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to. Please also head over to the World Extreme Medicine website where you can find more engaging content on extreme medicine webinars and indeed the collection of courses from our global network, including humanitarian, disaster relief, expedition, space, military, tactical and performance medicine. Thanks again.